This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You're dialed to Literati Glitterati. My name is Mel Fulton. What a great fun show we have lined up for you this morning. Um, if you're into books and reading and stories, welcome. It's lovely to have you. If you're wondering where I've been, I've been at home with the dogs. Shout out to Ripley and Sam. They are Triple R subscribers. Um, they subscribe to Maps because they've got fantastic taste. Um, The other thing that I've been doing is I've been doing loads and loads of reading. So you're in for a treat today. Um, I want to give a little shout out to Giramondo's Heat Journal because um, I read it in bed yesterday when I was off sick and it it turned a potentially horrid day into quite a delightful one. Um, Elena Lodkinar, who you might know as the director of this fantastic film Petrol that's playing at the moment at the Nova, um, she's written a couple of short stories that are in there that I think form kind of the basis of the film, and they were delightful to read. Bonnie Cassidy is in there as well, wonderful local poet uh, based in Jarjawarung country, writing about, um, sort of journaling about, about her father, really, really interesting stuff. And I just thought it was worth giving it a little shout out because it was something that I read lately and that delighted me. So uh, that's Heat Journal that you can find through the Giramondo website. Um, Really fun show lined up today. We're going to be talking to Gretchen Sherm, who is a Sydney-based writer um, who has just put out her third book, her second novel. Um, It's called The Crying Room, and it's out now through Transit Lounge Press. The opening chapter of this book is just fantastic. Uh, There's a young woman, and she's working in a crying room, which is this little room near King's Cross Station that opens at 7 o'clock in the morning and it smells like lemon detergent and people go there silently uh, before work, after work, on their lunch breaks and they have a little, they have a little weep <laughs> and there's something about, there's something about this scene that, that really moved me. Triple R I'm delighted to introduce to the show Gretchen Sherm. Gretchen is the author of a collection of short stories, Having Cried Wolf, and a debut novel, Where the Light Falls. Her criticism is published regularly in all the major dailies, and The Crying Room is her second book. It's out now through Transit It's out now through Transit Lounge. Thanks for being on the show, Gretchen. Thanks for having me, Mel. It's a pleasure to be here. Ah. It's my second time on this show. Hell yeah, really? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, a long time when Having Cried Wolf came out, I was I was on this show a bit uh, of a... with Jeff Sparrow and somebody else. Ah. I can't remember their name. Well, what a but wonderful, what a wonderful homecoming! Welcome back. Um, I want to talk to you about this book, and I should really introduce the premise of the novel and what happens. But before we do, I just want to start by asking you about the title of it, The Crying Room, and this opening chapter in which we meet this young woman who cries in her job interview and is given a job there. Tell us about where you got the idea for it from and how it kind of played out for you. Oh, um, well, I mean, this chapter was probably... I mean, this is an, it was an interesting book to write because it didn't. I didn't write it chronologically, and um, this this particular chapter, the first chapter, was one of the first uh, chapters I wrote. Um, and I guess 
I was trying to explain uh, this particular woman, this young woman who didn't sort of feel connected to the life that she was leading. And I guess I was thinking about, um, I don't know, you know, I was writing at a time when the world felt like a sort of slightly unreal place when, you know, Trump had just been elected and, you know, the world seemed like it was on the brink of environmental collapse, not that much has changed there. And so, I don't know, I had always written realism up until writing this novel and um, realism just didn't feel kind of um, adequate to capture the times we were living in. So that's where the crying room came from. Um, and apparently there is a crying room in Spain, someone pointed out to me, but I had no idea. I just sort of invented it. It was just a kind of figment of my imaginings. Wow. I'm I'm so glad that the crying room does exist somewhere because as I was reading it, I was like, what an extraordinary kind of premise. And I think it's something that could that could really quite help people. And I don't know what that means about the world that we live in where I think, you know, maybe paying $7 by donation and checking in to have a little quiet cry on your way to work is a great solution. But I, I do think that it is. So <laughs> thank you. And thanks. Yeah. Either a crying room or a crying wand, I think. Would, yeah. Would serve us all. <laughs> yeah, one of the two. We either need a space where we can go or um, massive guitar shredding and a little bit of like kind of purge. Preferably both of them, I think, is good. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love... I love this as an opening chapter to the book because the book itself, um, the book itself is a it's a wonderful book and a really interesting one. It opens on this kind of almost magical premise, but the novel itself and the themes that it deals with largely and its central focus is, um, you know, grounded sort of more in the real and in the domestic. It's a look at who we are as individuals and who we are in the context of our families. And it does that really beautifully by looking at, quite closely looking at three generations of women. Um, it looks at Bernie Rogers and her husband who have recently moved to Ballina from the city. Uh, they're looking for a sort of quieter life. They're starting to wind things down. But they've introduced this very real sort of physical barrier to their adult children when a psychic one kind of already existed. And then we take a look at the adult children. We have a look at Susie, and Susie is the person who, as a young woman, is working in this crying room, who then goes on to become a paediatrician. She's quite a successful person, but she's quite sort of unknowable to herself or something. She has trouble feeling or accessing her feelings. And her sister, Alison... Her sister Alison is quite a lot like Bernie, has inherited this kind mm. of... Uh, she loves her kids and she loves the people around her, but she's got this abrasive kind of quality that she can't ever overcome. And then we've got the youngest generation, uh, the daughter Monica, who is Alison's daughter, but for a number of reasons goes to live with Susie and Monica wants to be a writer. And through Monica's writing we have this fantastic book. Um, it's basically mm. written by her. She's the authorial voice. The book does all kinds of amazing things structurally that we'll get to soon to kind of let us in on the process of writing the book. But what I want to tell you after that extraordinarily long introduction is why is it that families are such ripe fodder over and over again always for us to write these narratives? And they're always so entirely different. How, how does this happen um, well, I suppose, I mean, yeah, I'm glad you've talked about that because it was something that I was trying to do, sort of explore this idea that, um, 
you know, as to become individuals, we kind of have to work out what our own story is and how we tell our stories and our narratives about ourselves. But then to belong to a family, we kind of have to belong to a larger narrative that we might not always feel like um, works together with our own sort of personal narratives. So I guess those were the things I was trying to explore. And it wasn't really until I sort of discovered Monica as the writer of The Crying Room that I really understood how all of the different pieces of this book fitted together. Um, but why are families such brilliant fodder for fiction? I don't know. I mean, I just... Um, someone asked me the other day whether all families were dysfunctional and I don't necessarily think that that's the case but certainly fictional families are often dysfunctional um, but I think probably one of the reasons is because families so strongly make us who we are and um, when I started writing this book I had just had a child myself and I think I really felt the kind of immensity of the responsibility of, of bringing up an, another human being and you know, the the power that you have over them and the sort of the ability to shape them and to kind of damage them even. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess because they have such a profound effect on us, our families often are, you know, um, important or um, good territory for writing through and in. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, there's a great part in the book uh, where Monica, she's she's a young woman, she's at uh, she's studying writing at university and um, and her work is just being workshopped and she's she's written something about her mother and the feedback that she gets is like you are this is quite good but you are so mean to your mum like why 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 this meanness I think you need to do something about it and um, it was this it was this great moment for me where I was reading it going yeah like how well, how is that for you? Like, how do you how do you comb that stuff out? Because it's so close. We all are in families. We're all grappling with our identity and our own journey of the things we inherit and the things we pass on. Plus, you're a critic. So there's this extra layer of kind of interesting stuff happening. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of writing it? Um, yeah, I mean... Well, I guess to talk about the process of writing it a little bit, when I started writing, I had this idea that I, you know, I've been really influenced, I think, by um, Elizabeth Strout, who writes, you know, Olive Kittredge, which is a which is a book, um, a novel, but it's a novel in stories about one character. And I really had the, and also Tim Winton's The Turning, um, I really had this idea that I wanted to capture one character being Susie over the course of her life at intervals to try and sort of capture her development and the sense that, you know, as we, we change, we kind of look back on earlier versions of ourselves. And that was sort of my idea for the project. But then when I started writing it, I just, I realized I couldn't explain Susie just by her own narrative that her, that she could only really be explained by reference to her mother and her sister and then um, you know, the niece, Monica, who comes along. So that was sort of how it came about. And it wasn't until I kind of had this bright idea of having Monica as the author of The Crying Room, inside The Crying Room, that it actually sort of seemed to hang together and, and sort of um, bring the kind of jigsaw puzzle pieces together as a whole thing. So that's how it came about. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I love that you mentioned um, Elizabeth Strout and Olive Kitteridge. Uh, it's a great recommendation. If you've not read Elizabeth Strout's books, they are 
delightful and such a comfort. And if you don't fancy reading a book at the moment, but you want to know what we're talking about, the the HBO adaptation starring Frances McDormand is also wonderful. Um, So please do look it up. Um, It sounds like, well, I guess the next question that I'd really like to ask you is about... um, is about form because you've talked about the necessity of your character existing by bumping up against other people um, and that that is how you were able to paint who they were. But how are you able to do that on the page? Because you do a lot of really interesting things on the page for listeners. Um, there's a uh, there's a chapter which is a, a discarded chapter in the manuscript. So it's it's obviously been forwarded, um, you know, to the publisher, but it's got strikeouts the whole way through and there's notes from Monica saying, look, I hope it's not too late, but I think we need to lose this chapter. And elsewhere in the book, there are little bits of marginalia and things like that, like little notes about what Monica's doing as this story is progressing um, it's it's really interesting, a really interesting use of form to to give us extra context and to give the novel life. How'd you do it? Mm. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I I sort of did it incrementally. I mean, I didn't really set out to. I certainly set out to write a kind of you know fragmented narrative and you know capture the way in which people sort of seem to develop suddenly. Um, over the course of their life. But then, you know, as I said, it slowly developed and I realised I needed to be able to explain Susie through the other members of her family. But then once I had Monica as the writer, um, I kind of realised that that was the way the whole manuscript fitted together. And I remembered remembered reading an excellent book that I loved called uh, The Trick Is To Keep Breathing by Janice Galloway and she had these little margin notes in that book and I had never seen anything like that before in fiction or again really and I thought to myself oh I wonder if I can kind of do that and I sort of started doing that and then um, with the strike through chapter I think that was the last chapter I actually wrote of The Crying Room and um, I just thought I really I needed something to sort of Monica to be there through the whole book and that was one way to show she was there without actually being there you know on the you know as a character or as a narrator so much um so and we had this interesting conversation with my publisher about whether people would actually read this chapter if it was in a strike through <laughs> font and, oh, I um, think it makes it all the more delicious you're like am I allowed oh, to yeah, read this suddenly yeah, I but, want to I mean I always wanted yeah, but to I but I had I had there was this, I had this vivid memory of um, Zoe Heller's notes on a scandal, which from my memory of it had a whole chapter in strike through font. So I was like, well, you know, people read Zoe Heller's book, so they'll read this. But when I went back and looked at that book after, you know, after the book was published, you know, it was, it's one paragraph of strike through font in, in Zoe Heller's book, you know, but it was Ah. obviously made such an impact on me. I had recalled it as being a whole chapter, but, um, yeah, I just, once I came up with that idea, I just, I was trying to play with the idea of, I mean, I guess, as I said at the start, I think that um, storytelling is really kind of implicated in being a family. Um, you know, I've just read Gabriel Carey's book, Moving Amongst Strangers, in which she's sort of talking a little bit about her family and also Randolph Stowe and the relationship they had with him. And she kind of says, well, you know, in families, the story 
there are different stories to tell and the story that gets told often depends on who's doing the telling. So, you know, that was kind of something that I was, I was playing with as well. So yeah, who's doing the telling depends on, you know, it it tells us what, what the story is that's being told about this family. Yeah. Fantastic. And by going that extra sort of mile to, uh, to invite us into the process of it being written and agonised over, we get we get a really strong sense of of who that person is and what and what compromises them and what what demons they're kind of battling themselves. Independently yours, Triple R, one hundred two point seven. Gretchen, I wanted to ask you, um, we've been talking a little bit about kind of your process for writing the book. I am really interested in your editing process um, and how you go about getting the words down when you are also um, a literary critic and how those two kind of roles intersect. Um, Are you constantly editing yourself as you go? Do you have to switch that role off completely and write totally freely? What do you do? How do you manage it? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, I think, um, I mean, I think those different styles of writing are just maybe kept apart in my head perhaps because I just, I don't really, I mean, first of all, when I'm writing fiction, I tend to write longhand. Like I've, you know, I've got all these notebooks with my terrible handwriting in them. Um, and when I'm writing criticism, I write directly onto the computer. So I think that maybe that helps me kind of demarcate the two styles Um, but I just, and I think possibly because before, you know, I sort of did my doctorate and gave up my practicing certificate, I was a lawyer and I had to kind of fit writing in like around the edges of that life. And I think somehow I just have these two different streams in my mind, the kind of critical stream and the creative stream, and they don't sort of necessarily kind of, they just feel like two different, very different kind of occupations and styles to me. Um, I love yeah. that. And never Sorry. shall they meet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Just keep them totally separate. That sounds great. Yeah. I've talked to some writers who, who were quite tortured by that process who were like, I interrogate every word. <laughs> and then other people oh, who really? have, who seem to sounds be able terrible. to sort of separate. Yeah, it does. It sounds, it sounds like it hurts, you know? Um, and I feel for those guys, they make good stuff too. No judgment, but it's, it sounds hard. Um, yeah. You have also written a short story collection and you've mentioned that parts of this story, like this story or this novel was not written chronologically. How do you go in that way? How do these things come together for you? What started it? Yeah, well, um, yeah, so I guess in other books I've written, I've sort of had this idea of the structure of it before I started writing. I've got, I've, you know like for Where the Light Falls and for the another book I've just written, I sort of knew the shape of it before I started writing. But this book was very different in that I sort of discovered it as I went, which was kind of both terrifying and exciting at the same time. Um, so, yeah, it just slowly and incrementally kind of ballooned out from Susie, this, this book. Um, and... It's but it's in that sense it's been very different to my other kind of books that I've written. So, yeah, it sits close. It's not very it? organic, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think that um, you know, there's this great quote on the cover of the book from Helen Garner. I feel like 
I feel like I should get like I should have to put two dollars in a jar every time I mention Helen Garner on this show, and by the end of the year I can go on a holiday to the Gold Coast or something. But um, there's a great quote, and it says, "Deeply rewarding." Sherm dances with a light step across the delicate territory between laughing and weeping. And I think the other thing that you do that you dance with a light step across is uh, is genre in a way. I, d- I don't mean that in too heavy-handedly, but the first chapter is almost quite magical and exists sort of in this just beyond the real. And the rest of the novel is really quite a close study of individuals and families. But the other thing that you bring in, and I don't want to give any spoilers to people who are listening, but you also speak really closely to the present world that we live in or to historic recent historical events and things that we you know that we're reading about in the news um the m70 flight that you know that went missing um is certainly a big part of this novel uh this novel speaks to climate change quite directly um tell us about how um how you do that dance yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm glad you mentioned the Helen Garner quote. And when she read it, she, you know, she was one of the first people to point out the humour in the novel. And I think that that's certainly, you know, a development for me in my writing. I'm not sure I've ever sort of consciously used humour before. And I think that humour is a really good way to um, be able to approach some difficult subject matter that might not be otherwise kind of accessible. Um, so I was really glad that she observed, made that observation. Um, yeah, in terms of the kind of, yeah, yeah, you're right. There's, there are all of these speculations in the novel. There's the crying room, but there's also later on, um, a chapter called the closure company, which is about a place people go to, to employ grief doubles, to express their grief to people they might've lost. Um, so there, there are all of these disruptions of, there's reality and there's these kind of disruptions and speculations that happen um, amidst that. Um, and I guess, you know, it was going back to this feeling that I had that, you know, I'd, I'd been writing a lot of realism and realism just didn't seem like enough to kind of capture what we were going through. It just felt like, you know, for a while there and sometimes more recently it feels like we're only experiencing a brief interlude of that period, but but we're going through these sort of massive upheavals and I just didn't think I could capture all of what I was feeling and the immensity of what we're going through with just realism. And I think that um, it was just really important to me to kind of capture the or try and play with the boundaries between the real and the unreal and um, what is reality and what what's real in the novel and what is what Monica, who is the author of the novel, has written. Um, and I think that fiction is kind of uniquely placed to question those kind of boundaries and the porousness between the real and the unreal. Um, so, yeah, that, that was sort of – it was quite conscious um, – and I'm glad that it came through. Yeah, it absolutely did. I think it's something that I've been wondering about a lot lately, um, how we capture the present times or the modern times in fiction, how we capture it in lip- in literature because it's a hyper-real time. Um, and I-, I think that there's people feel this sort of enormous pressure to speak to it but also this extreme desire to escape it and to imagine what else might be possible um and it's it's very interesting now uh to be reading you know kind of 
COVID-based literature, and I'm certainly not saying that that is what the crying room is, but to to be in the act of creating at this time, I think is very is very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it, that's right. There are some there are some very real events, including you know a reference to a kind of pandemic in in the crying room, and I you know yeah, it reminds me of. Um, Elizabeth Strout's most recent book, Lucy by the Sea, which also is a deeply personal book but brings in, you know, their pandemic but also, um, you know, what's going on in terms of Black Lives Matter in America um, and those sorts of developments. And I do, yeah, I do particularly thinking about Strout, admire the way the personal and the political kind of bleed together. Um, And, yeah, and I definitely think she's a huge influence on me as a writer um, yeah. So tell us, um, I mean, where do you see this book sitting? Like where, where would you, where would you put it on the shelf? Where, where does it go? Who does it belong with? Who are its Who friends? Does it with? Yeah. <laughs> well, definitely Elizabeth Strout is, is its friend. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully. Yeah. Um, I mean, not to kind of compare myself to, uh, Elizabeth Strout, but uh, there you go. Um, Anne Enright is a writer I deeply admire, and she's often writing about, um, you know, the contemporary zeitgeist in Ireland, at least, and uh, also families um, and the way that the contemporary zeitgeist of Ireland kind of enacts itself on the family. Um, so she's another one that I that I really admire, and I do think, you know, you, you mentioned Helen Garner before, and. Um, one of the books or one of my favourite, all-time favourite short story collections is actually Helen Garner's Postcards from Surfers, which is a quite an old um, book these days. But it's just, it is so, um, you know, I always, I reread it and it's just so kind of beautiful and it's it's quite radical in its form in the sort of the way it leaves things out, the way it leaves things unspoken and I think that that's definitely something that comes through in my fiction and, and in the crying room quite a bit too. I don't I don't like to overstate things and I like to leave space for the reader to kind of make connections and discoveries. Um, and I think that that's something that Helen Garner does quite radically and beautifully in uh, Postcards from Surfers that isn't necessarily in a lot of her other writings. But, you know, that, that playing with form I find... Um, really, really strong in postcards from surfers. Yeah, fantastic. I think there are some great recommendations for people there and I, I need to pick that one up again. I recently re- reread um, The Children's Bark and I and I loved it. Oh, yeah. Um, that's another good one. Yeah, well, the, the stories were, the Postcards from Surfers was republished um, a few years ago as, you know, as a collection of all of her stories together with Postcards from Surfers and a couple of others added. Um, so yeah, you can definitely get hold of it. Yeah, you can, you can, if you're listening, I think text put them out as like a, quite a beautiful little hardcover number. If you, if you're in the market Mm. for something else nice to read for a friend of the crying room, um, (laughs) we're running out of time, which is sad, but, um, I guess a nice question to end on is like, what, what do you want, uh, I mean, who is this book for and, and what do you want them, what do you want them to feel? What do you want us to take from it? Um, I guess, yeah, I guess what I want them to feel, I want them to feel. I mean, I think one of the things, one of the observations that one character makes in, in a story is that, you know, she, she thought that the problem was, 
that the problem most people have these days is not feeling too much, but the problem is just not feeling at all. And I think that feeling is definitely something that I want the reader to do. Um, and yeah, I mean, going back to that idea of, um, the, the Monica, the author inside the crying room, I guess, you know, I guess one of the things that's why I think the three generations of women were necessary is because there are kind of emotions that pass between the generations without, um, any of them really understanding how those kind of feelings pass between them and without certainly I think Susie's problem is that she just doesn't really understand where her melancholy comes from. And I think when I thought about Monica, who's the author of The Crying Room inside the book, one of the things I was thinking was about the importance of being able to tell our own stories and to be able to express ourselves freely and openly. And I guess by the time I'd finished writing The Crying Room, I decided that, you know, that was the thing that actually, you know, um, allowed Monica to flourish was her ability to kind of tell her own story and tell stories about her family and kind of express herself openly. So um, who do I think The Crying Room is for? Um, hopefully everyone who's mm. who belongs to a family, so all of us. Um, yeah, but, but I guess, you know, I always think that I, you know, when I finished writing something, I've kind of taught myself something and, and if that's the kind of message, then I hope that people get from it, then, you know, I'd be very happy with that. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us on Literati Glitterati, Gretchen. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Mel. Thanks for having me. No worries. Uh, the Crying Room is out now through Transit Lounge to pick it up. Triple R. Thank you so much for tuning in to Literati Glitterati for another week. It's been great fun. And next week, I've got a pretty good one in the bag. I'm going to be talking to Bryony Doyle, who I love, whose new book I absolutely love. Um, and I'm also going to be talking to the editors of Delicious and Intriguing Tart magazine. So tune in next week. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.